Our scripture, this, our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Peter explained, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, So then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you so much that your church has gathered here this morning. We thank you for the new life that you have brought about in our hearts, that you have caused us to believe in Jesus Christ and that we can trust in him alone for our salvation. Pray now that you would turn our hearts and our minds to the proclamation of your word and may we sit under it humbly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, can you hear me? Great. Great to see your faces. I love seeing you every single week, man. It's just so great to see you all. Um, this morning, we're going to be in chapter 11. Now, the verse we just read, that verse is the end of the last story. And we read it at the beginning last week as well, because that is an incredibly important connection piece between what God was doing in the household of Cornelius, a Gentile Roman, and now turning to the Greeks. And today we're going to look at God turning to Greek cities, to Greek cities. Everyone loves a good mystery, don't you? Oh, I do. What's your favorite? <laughs> yeah, no one wants to say, because I know what you've been reading. No, just kidding. <laughs> but everybody loves a good mystery story. What, what is it about a mystery that is so interesting. I think it's just the plot twist. I think, it's, I think it's the process of discovering something that you had no idea was coming. And this is why Paul later will call the gospel a mystery. He calls it the mystery of the gospel. He says that several times in his epistles. The word mystery is the Greek word uh, mysterion, where we get the word mystery. <laughs> and it just means secret. This was a secret. This was something that God hid in the past. No one could figure out, especially the enemies of God. Especially the people who were enemies of God. No one could figure it out. It was cryptic. It was there, but it required revelation later so that you could see the mystery. So that you could see how the plot would unfold. And what is the mystery? What is the secret? Well, it was the secret that the Gentiles, people who are not natural-born Jews, are now being welcomed into the family of God. God's holy family made up of Jew and Gentile alike. It's just one family. And God has now welcomed the people who are non-Jews into his holy family. Amazing. This is a mystery. This is a plot twist. No one saw this coming. And so this chapter is really about that. This chapter is also about the Holy Spirit. It's about this unexpected thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in bringing the life that was poured out in Jerusalem seven years ago. Where were you seven years ago? Seven years ago, I was not the pastor of this church. Seven years ago, I was the executive pastor of another church up in Spokane. Six years ago, I came down here to candidate as your pastor. I don't remember standing at, well, it wasn't exactly this stage, but it was just about right here when I, when I preached my first sermon to you. And I remember as someone was giving me a tour around the town, I asked the question, what are all these ditches full of water for? 
<laughs> because honestly, I had never seen that in my entire life. And the person explained, oh, these are canals, and they are fed from the river. And they, they are fed from the river, and it is a network of canals and irrigation so that the water can, can get to increasingly distant plots of land to water them, to water these fields. And I thought, this is amazing. This is cool. We have these things all over our town. Well, I wasn't really living here yet, but I thought that was pretty cool. And as I was driving around this last week, and as the canals begin to fill up again, I think this is an analogy of what was going on in the book of Acts. What was happening in the book of Acts is you had this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this water of life. Jesus said in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, it'll be like rivers of living water flowing from within. From within. And so this river is now feeding these corridors and these canals that are increasing into the Gentile world, and nobody expected it, bringing the life of heaven that has been poured out on Jerusalem into increasingly distant territories. And that's the story that we're going to look at today, beginning in 1119. We find that the river of life, God's life-giving Holy Spirit, begins to make a lasting and permanent impact and inroads into the Gentile world. So in this message, the gospel is going to relentlessly forge ahead, despite the reluctance of the Christians. The first thing we pull out of this story, number one, is that the gospel most often advances by unnamed champions. The gospel most often advances by unnamed champions. Now, we had noted in verse 19 that uh, people had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started all the way back with Stephen. And they, they went back out into the world, and now they're taking the grace and the mercy and the life of the gospel of Jesus and getting it into the bloodstream of Rome. And it's irreversible. And verse 19 says, they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, very important cities, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now, this is important in verse 19 because he says they're still just talking to Jews. <laughs> so these are Jews who have been saved and receive this powerful, life-changing river of the Spirit in their hearts and in their lives, and they're still only sharing it with Jewish folk. They go to Greek cities and then go to the synagogues and share it with just the Jews. But God has other plans. Look at verse 20. Chapter 11, verse 20 says, But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch. So after they evangelized there in Cyprus, the island, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, in Cyrene, they then went to a city inland in Antioch, called Antioch, and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. I love this phrase, don't miss it. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Which men? We don't know. We don't know. The church is built on the foundations, Ephesians 2.20 says, of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ as our chief cornerstone, isn't it? But no one ever just lays a foundation. Jesus actually used this building analogy in the Gospels. He says no one just builds a foundation and then doesn't finish the building. He'll be laughed at. He'll be the laughingstock of your community. So God has begun to build this church, this holy temple, that's Ephesians 2. He is building this temple made of Jew and Gentile in the Lord on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ as the cornerstone who holds the whole edifice, the whole building together. But then every brick in the temple, every brick in the structure are people that you may not know, that you would have never heard of. 
And over 2,000 years, this is the way that God has mostly done it. God has mostly chosen people in utter obscurity to build the church, just like you and just like me. And God is now and has been for 1,973 years, exactly, building on that foundation through countless testimonies and conversions of people that you and I will never hear of or know until we get to heaven. Ordinary folk. As a preacher of the gospel in America, I am acutely aware of my irrelevance to the larger culture. I mean, I am one cell, one atom in the body. And I really appreciate famous preachers. I like them. I read them all the time. I love Charles Spurgeon. I think that's Daniel's favorite, absolutely Daniel's favorite. In fact, Daniel has decided to grow the Charles Spurgeon beard. I don't know if you know that. He's our little Spurgeon. He, he knows all about Spurgeon on, on staff. If we have a question about Charles, we, we ask him. And I love his sermons. I read uh, a quote from Charles Spurgeon every single day. He was by far and away the most famous and prosperous preacher of his day. And I love the commentaries. I love George Whitfield. George Whitfield was just a, just a whirlwind of the gospel. Jonathan Edwards, Wycliffe, Calvin, Arminius, you name it. The church is full of famous preachers, but the vast majority of people who have served the body of Christ have been local elders and local pastors and local teachers and local Sunday school teachers you will never hear about. And this is how God does it. Men, certain men from Cyrene and Cyprus came, and they did the work. And that's how God does it. That's how Dad did it. That's how we do it. Right? And so the unnamed disciples who proclaim the gospel in dialogue with their pagan neighbors are the key to world evangelism. That is the key to world evangelism. And, and, I, and I am struck by the fact that every word that I have ever written, you need to know, I work really hard on my sermons. I write four a week. I'm not kidding about that. I start on Monday, I throw that draft away. I rewrite it on Tuesday. Tuesday at lunch, I like the sermon. By three o'clock... I don't like it. I throw it away. <laughs> Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, same thing. By Thursday, I have to turn it into the programming team. So whatever I have, that's what they get. I work really hard on these messages, but I got to tell you, a generation after me, no one will have remembered anything that I ever did. And I'm okay with that. I mean, it, well, it's kind of sad, but, but I'm all right with it, <laughs> right? Because I know in my time, I'm being faithful to feed the flock that God has given me to feed the people in the scope of my care. And this is how God does it. Certain men from Cyprus and Cyrene came, and they're unnamed, and they did the work. It's amazing. And even though we don't know who they are, we are their heritage nonetheless. Number two, the Spirit can't be controlled, though the work of the Spirit requires management. I think the second thing we read from this story is that the Spirit of God cannot be controlled. We can't say, okay, now, Holy Spirit, go to, go to Rexburg. You know, like, we can't say that. We can pray that, but we're not in control of that. We don't control the Spirit. What we learn from the book of Acts is that the Spirit goes wherever He wills. But when the Spirit shows up and begins to to pour himself out on the people, and God pours the Holy Spirit out on the people, that requires the management of the people who are there, namely through leaders. We'll meet a man in this story named Barnabas. 
who was a key leader in transitioning Paul into the church. So Barnabas is key for two reasons. One, because he is the liaison between this man named Saul of Tarsus and getting him into the church. And he is the liaison, one of them, from the Gentiles into the Jewish church. So this is quite amazing. This man is a key, key leader figure. Verses 22 through 24. This is news about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Uh, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged, uh, and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And so we're going to unpack some of the stuff that's in these two verses because there's a lot packed down in there. And I just, like a suitcase, I just kind of want to take everything out of it, okay, if you don't mind. First thing we see is that the presence of the Lord is the key to faithfulness and fruitfulness. The presence of the Lord is the key to faithfulness and fruitfulness. Now, back in 19, it says, and the Lord was with them, and what happened? Large numbers were added. The Lord was with them, and something happened. When the Lord is with you, something is happening. And so the presence of the Lord is the key to their faithfulness and their fruitfulness. And Acts has many such statements. Uh, about six different times it says, and the Spirit was working, and large numbers were added to the church. Does God care about church growth? Does he? You better believe he does. Because every number is a person. And God cares about people. And God wants to win as many as possible to himself, to his saving, saving work. But God doesn't only care about numerical growth. That's not the only thing that God cares about. Sometimes you're faithful and you're fruitful. And that, theological term, is super cool. Right? That's just cool. That's just fun. It is fun to know that you're being faithful to the gospel and then God is doing, a, you see all the fruit almost immediately. That is so fun. But sometimes you're faithful and you don't feel fruitful at all. You feel like, is God really in this? Is, is God in this thing? Because if God were in this thing, something, something would be changing. But just because you're being faithful doesn't mean you're always going to be productive for the gospel. Take Paul in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, now Paul has had great success so far and Thessalonica. Now, later, he will say to the Thessalonians, you're my favorite church. I know I'm not supposed to have favorites, but you're my favorite because you're so faithful. Oh, your faith is so childlike, and he just, he, he lauds them. He praises them for being such a faithful congregation, and then he'll minister to the Bereans, and what do we know about the Bereans? Well, they're the Bible, biblical literacy church. They want to study the word. They want to make sure that the gospel is lining up with what they know about the scriptures. And for sure it does. And they receive it. They are people of, the scripture says, of noble character. So Paul has been pretty successful. He's gone to Philippi. He was successful there. I mean, pretty much everywhere where he's gone, he's been successful. Now, he's been in Antioch. In this story, we learn that he's in Antioch, and he's very successful here. A large revival is breaking out. So then he gets to Athens. Not so much. He gets to Athens, the philosophy capital of the world. The scripture says, and all these people do with their time is sit around and talk about stuff endlessly. They like to talk about ideas, the newest ideas, and so they're very glad to hear Paul's new ideas. 
And he goes up to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is a place uh, where they debated. They debated philosophical ideas. And this is Paul at his best. He's giving them solid reasons and arguments. He's giving them solid, solid scripture. He's arguing from their poets. He's arguing from their artifacts. He gives them as good of a case for the existence of God and Jesus as a person could possibly give. And he says, what do you think? And the philosophers go, meh. <laughs> People don't receive it. They yawn through his presentation. And the scripture says he left three believers. Three. Now, you could look at that and say, well, he wasn't successful. Not by American standards, that's for sure. He wasn't productive. Did he produce the fruit of the kingdom? Well, he left three believers. Yeah, but he's used to ministering to 3,000 people at once. So where was the fruit if God was in it? Fast forward 100 years. The Athenian church, that church that is planted as a seed in Athens, becomes so prominent and so, so uh, uh, successful in early church history. By 139, the bishop of Rome the overseer over the church of Rome, writes the Athenian church and says, hey, congratulations. By the way, where are you, all of your martyrs? And they have to respond to say, we don't have any because our persecution is of a philosophical and social nature, not of the flesh. And so what, what happened here? That little seed that was planted by Paul becomes something great in the life and the history of the church. Never discount a seed planted in fertile soil. Never. Never discount it. Just because right now you don't feel like you're being particularly fruitful doesn't mean that you're not being faithful. You just plant the seed, and God is the one who will make it grow. And this is precisely what they do. Next, what we see is we see that news about the Antioch necessitated a response from headquarters, Jerusalem. So in chapter 11, verses 22, it says news about them reached the church in Jerusalem. How did the news get there? Well, it traveled. People who travel back and forth were telling the people at Jerusalem, listen, this, God is pouring out the Holy Spirit on that city. It is amazing what God is doing. And so they have a reputation of being an infectious gospel community. And they have fled the Sanhedrin's persecution after Stephen's death. And have, after incubating in the church of Jerusalem, they go as far out as Cyprus and Cyrene and Antioch and Phoenicia, <clears throat> And when the disciples get to Antioch, certain men evangelize those people, and they have a reputation in the region. Let me ask you, what's our reputation in the region? When I first came to Christ, I, I was part of a church. I had no idea this was the case, but I was part of a church in Richmond, Virginia, that was the fastest growing church in Richmond. And that church there was really known for some things in the community. I didn't know this. I was just a part of this church. I got swept up in the revival that was happening at this church, and it was growing, and it was large, and, and God was bringing a lot of people and a lot of messed up teenagers like me in, and I just remember uh, talking to people out in the community. So I used to attend uh, pretty much throughout the week every Bible study, every midweek service, every Friday and Saturday night service I could with, uh, with my homies. So I would attend wherever, whatever their church was. I'd go to church with them, and, they would all, and their friends would always ask me, what church are you a part of? I would say, West End Assembly of God. And they would go, oh, I heard about that church. And I'd go, what did you hear? You know? And they would tell me what they heard about that church. And I was like, hmm, that feels pretty good to be part of that church. 
And then I would go to school or I would be at work working at the, the bagel shop and I'd be there and people would ask me, uh, they would know I was a Christian and they would ask, what church are you part of? And I would say, uh, West End Assembly of God on Parham Road. And they would go, oh, I heard about that church. What did you hear? Well, I heard they were awesome. <laughs> yes, you're right. We're awesome. Indeed, we are. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the line. So it took some time last week as I was thinking about this point and thought about what reputation do I want Christ Community Church to have in this community? What do I want to be the buzz about CCC in this territory, this region? Well, here's what I want. I want this church to have the reputation in this community. Now, this isn't a mission statement. You heard our mission statement. Daniel said it earlier. This is just a reputation. I want us to have the reputation of being unwavering in our faithfulness to the gospel, unmovable, uncompromising, and persistently friendly to the people who don't believe it yet. When, when you say, I go to Christ Community Church, this is what I want people to say back to you. Oh, I heard about that church. You know what I heard? I heard those people stand for what they believe. Like, they, you can't shake those people. They're the friendliest people. <laughs> This is what Paul said to the Thessalonians, his favorite church. He said, when we were there, we delighted not to share just the gospel with you, but our lives as well. Do you like the people that you talk to about Jesus? I mean, there's, there's nothing whatsoever in the Bible that says you don't have to like the people that you're witnessing to. Jesus loved the sinner. Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And I want this church, the people, you, in this church, out in the community, to be known as people who are not going to compromise the gospel unswervingly. We are committed to what this book says. But at the same time, we're the most hospitable, welcoming, friendly people in this community. And next we see the, the Jerusalem church's response was to send a trusted leader. Verse 22b and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Verse 24 says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Trusted leadership is vital, and it's a blessing to the church. Trusted leadership is vital to the health of the church, and it is a blessing to the church, to have a person that you trust. Now, Barnabas is trusted. We learn he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Now, you show me a man who is full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, I'll show you a good man. I'll show you a good person who exudes the goodness of God because he is full of God, and God is good. He's a good God. And so this man is full of goodness. He just exudes goodness, and I love this this about him, but the church gave him a nickname. His real name, who knows it? What's his Hebrew name? Yosef. Joseph. His Hebrew name is Joseph, and the people have called him Barnabah, which is the Aramaic word for the son of the prophet. And the Greek transliteration of that means the son of encouragement. Well, in Jewish parlance, uh, if you were a son of a prophet, you were an encourager. Because that's how they viewed prophecy. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, prophecy is encouragement. Prophecy is encouragement. That's, the way, that's a very Jewish perspective, a very Jewish thing to say. Well, who else would you send to Antioch? I mean, who else would you send? Well, you send the guy who's full of the Holy Spirit, a good man, full of faith, right? And you send the man who is going to encourage the church. 
You send the man who's going to get there and encourage them. And so they send leadership. Leadership is critical. Good leadership is critical to the health and growth and productivity of the church. Next, we see that Barnabas provided accountability and encouragement. So he's sent the Jerusalem church has to respond. And then what they do is they respond with a trusted, good, full of the Holy Spirit leader. And when he gets there, what does he provide? He provides accountability and encouragement. He provides accountability and encouragement. Now, first of all, no doubt, he was sent there to verify that the work that is being done in Antioch is of the gospel, that, it's, that it matches what the Holy Spirit has done in Jerusalem, that it matches what God had originally done among the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. He, that, he has to verify that. No question the church has sent him to, for accountability, for continuity. But Barnabas is also a Greek-speaking Jew, so he can talk to the Jews in Aramaic or Hebrew, and he can talk to the Greeks in their native language also. And so he has, he's also competent. He's a competent leader. And so how far away are we talking here? It says some distance. Well, to them, it would seem like a world away. To you and I, not so much. I mean, you could drive there in two, three hours. If I said to you, uh, hey, tomorrow, get up, and uh, start walking to Boise until you make it to Boise. How long would that take you? Would that feel like a long trip? Yeah, if you just had to walk, that's what they had to do. They didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles. They had to walk. And they probably didn't have horses either, so he has to walk. I looked it up on Google Maps. You want to know how long it takes? It takes three days and 15 hours, or 15 minutes. Three days and 15 minutes to walk straight there. That's if you don't camp out. So it's taking him now the better part of a week to just get there. If you lived at this time, you would think Antioch is a world away. And this river, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem has now made inroads. It's now cut canals and inroads out further and further all the way out to Antioch, northeast. Can you imagine God is doing this? Yes, yes, he is. And if the gospel has gone this far out into the sea in Cyprus and Crete, and as far east as Antioch, this will feel like another world, and you will wonder, you will wonder if, in fact, God is really doing something this far away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the epicenter. Jerusalem's the place. And so when he gets there, he is encouraged. The first thing he does is he is just filled with encouragement, and then he encourages the brothers. So he provides them accountability and encouragement. Yes, this is a work of the Lord. You guys are so encouraging what the Lord is doing among you. And then he observed the grace of God among them. Verse 23 says, when he arrived, this is what he saw. He saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? How do you see it? The grace of God is an effect. You see it in its effects. And what effects did he see? Well, Antioch as a city was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a very strategic place. Antioch was the place uh, of the largest horse chariot races in Rome. This was like NASCAR this, or NAS chariots or whatever. <laughs> I, I, this was just like, this was a place you come to watch uh, NAS, NAS chariots, right? To watch the chariot races. Antioch is also a cultural center. Every city boasts some deity, some 
patron that they worship, and, and their deity is the goddess Daphne, who was served by thousands of temple prostitutes. They call them priestesses, but they were temple prostitutes. Okay, well, there's something. It's also the place of a mass migration. Because what had happened there is, unlike any other city in ancient Rome, uh, Greeks began to convert to the belief system of Judaism. Not the whole ethnic system, so not circumcision, kosher, and Sabbath observance, but they were tired of the idiocy of pagan deities. And so what they did is these Greeks would convert then to the Jewish belief system. And so they were sort of uh, conceptually, they were Jews. <laughs> and so now you have this environment where all these things are converging. Now what happens when the gospel makes inroads, cuts a path to a city like this, and sinners, Gentiles, Greeks start getting saved? Well, you, for one thing, you have a mess. You got a mess on your hands. Because those Gentiles come into the church, they're messy. They have messy lives, man. They don't come in <laughs> to the church. Now, the ones that have converted to the belief system of Judaism are a little clean. They're cleaned up a little bit. But mostly, it's just a gigantic mess. And so what is the grace of God that he observed? Well, he observes the transforming grace of God. That God has transformed these people, these Greeks, into Christians, follower, followers of Jesus, and that their lives are being, getting to be shaped after the cross. And he observes the effects of the gospel in their midst. The grace of God ought to be something we can see in our midst. When I first came and candidated here, and I preached my first sermon, and we spent the weekend with all you good folks, and then we left to drive back up to Coeur d'Alene, uh, the very first thing I said to Carrie was, man, those are, th those are good people. That's what I said. I just, those people are really neat. You know, like, I really liked being around you. Aren't you glad? And I'm glad you liked being around me. And this is what I was saying to Carrie. I saw the grace of God poured out on that congregation. Like, I saw the effects of the grace of the Lord in this body. And when people come and they visit here, regardless of whether their lives are cleaned up or their lives are messy, that's what they should see. They should see in the body of Christ evidence that the grace and mercy and compassion of the Lord has been poured out on us. You believe that? Say amen. amen. Okay. And next, he observed the grace of God among them, and he delighted over the grace of God. Well, he was glad. He was glad. So he observed the grace of God among them, and then he delighted over the grace of God. He was glad. This is why we celebrate and worship when we baptize people into the body. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because that is in keeping with the spirit of the New Testament, the spirit of the New Testament. Our hearts are glad. Our hearts are, are full of celebration that people are going down and coming up in the Lord. What is a, what is a baptism service? I'm going to get on my high horse here for a second. If you would just indulge me, a baptism service should be two things. It should be a funeral service, and it should be a resurrection service. It's like Good Friday and Easter in one service, isn't it? And what do we do in a very sober way? We capture the stories of people who make the good confession. In fact, we have a rule here. If you don't want to give us your testimony by video, you can't be baptized in this church. That's my rule. I made that. And the reason I did is because I want your testimony. I want people to hear that you understand the gospel and you are making the good confession. And so that 
is done in the greatest spirit of sobriety. We're not jokey when we do that. And that person, when they go down in baptism, what are they signifying? What are they symbolizing? They're dying to their old life and unbelief, and they're rising again when they come up to Christ. And this is why our hearts are glad. Our hearts are celebrating because when we see the grace of the Lord poured out on our congregation, like 15 people getting baptized last night. Let me tell you something. What is our response to that? Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of praise. Be glad. And so when he gets there, brother, he is glad. He is just like in Jewish fashion, hands raised, hallelujah. Probably speaking in tongues. I know you won't, but he does. <laughs> Exodus 12, 14 says, this day is to be a memorial for you and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a, as a permanent statute. There's nothing more depressing than going to a Passover feast and feels like a funeral. It should be, it's a festival. He says, celebrate it. He says several times in that passage, celebrate this festival. That's what it is. This is a holiday. This is July the 4th. This is your Independence Day. Let the fireworks go. Exodus 23, 14 says, celebrate a festival in my honor three times a year. Three major festivals. And they're not, they are parties. They are festivals. They are celebrations to the Lord. Psalm 68, 3 and 4 says, but the righteous are glad. They rejoice before God and celebrate with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and celebrate before him. Why does the presence of the Lord require this celebration because it's good it's excellent it's better than your favorite team scoring a touchdown or winning the super bowl it's better than that it just is so of course there is a time for everything under the sun listen there is a time to mourn and a time to weep there is a time for sackcloth and ashes because there are seasons that you go through in your life and you feel like, frankly, that's all you have. The reason why you need sackcloth and ashes is because everything feels like it just turned to ash. When I watch my wife laying on the couch dying of cancer, I can tell you I wasn't very celebratory. Because it just felt like my life was turning to ashes in my hand. And so I was crying out to the Lord. After my surgery, when I lost my voice for almost three months and I couldn't preach, that was hell. Because what made it worse is that the way I work everything out when I have a problem in my life is I walk and I talk. That's what I do. I walk around the neighborhood, and there I am, walking around the neighborhood. In February, it's 12 below zero. The wind chill, 28 below zero. My breath is crystallizing as it's coming out of my mouth. Let me tell you what was not coming out of my mouth. Words because I couldn't talk. And just in my mind, I was going mad, crazy. I'm like, God, this is, this is great. I can't even pray. Like, this is the one way I work things out, and I lean into you, and I can't even pray right now. And God was faithful. God was faithful. And he kept me in that time. And in that time, on that season of our lives, all I felt for a couple of years was just like everything was turning to ashes in my hands. Ashes in my hands. And now I don't feel like that. Now I feel like I'm in a season where I can say, hallelujah, shout to God with the voice of triumph. God is good. Amen. Amen. Next, he encouraged the believers to remain faithful 
to Jesus. So you're always in a season. And right now, this is just a season of revival at this church. Verse 23c, it says, And he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And Jesus had a lot to say about remaining in him. The Gospel of John, he says, look, if you remain in me, I'll remain in you. He says, if you remain in me, you'll produce much fruit. So we talked about being productive for the kingdom. If you want to produce fruit, you've got to be in Christ. Because he's the life, his spirit is the lifeblood that feeds what you're doing. And so you've got to remain in Christ if you're going to be productive for Christ. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do one good thing in the world apart from me. And so we are to remain in the Lord. Why does it require a leader to remind a congregation to remain in the Lord? Because life is hard. Life is hard. Life is full of suffering and loss. Life is full of goodness. Life is full of seasons of abundance. Life is full of seasons where we're just so grateful and thankful for all the Lord is pouring out in our lives, for little kids, for grandkids, for jobs, for retirement, all of it. God is so good to us, and he pours that abundance out on us, but sometimes life is so hard, and life will present you with challenges to your faith to defeat your faith. And the devil is working overtime. If life didn't do it, he'd do it. He wants to rob you. He wants to kill, steal, and rob you of your faith. And so you need a leader to say, hey, be encouraged. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> yes, be encouraged. Put your head down and keep going one hard step at a time. And that's what it feels like sometimes. You keep your head down and you just keep going forward in the Lord. And as these daunting, heartbreaking challenges come into our lives, come to our faith, the leader's role is to say, hey, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God's not done with you yet. This isn't the end of your story. And he sought reinforcements. Verses 25 and 26. It says, then he, he went to Tarsus. So God is doing a great work here. He went to Tarsus and he got Saul. <laughs> and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. A couple things going on here. First of all, he's got to get reinforcements. He needs an other, another apostolic level leader to come and help and teach these people. And who better than Saul of Tarsus? Who better than the rabbi, the Pharisee, who's now a Christian, a radical, born-again Christian, to come and teach them about Jesus? Awesome. Awesome. And it was here that they were first called Christians. Who called them that? They didn't call themselves that. The town did. The city did. The people in the city said they're Christians. What is the word Christian? The word Christian in the Greek is Christianoi. Christianoi. That's a political term. It's a political term. It literally translates the partisans of Christ. That's how it literally translates. If you were a follower of Herod and you subscribed to the Herodian dynasty, you were called the Herodianoi. That's what you were called. You were called the followers of Herod, the Herod partisans. If you were a follower of Nero, the followers of Nero were called uh, the, the Neroni. What is the Neroni or the Neronians? They're the followers of the political party of Herod. The term Christian is a party affiliation term. And that's the only way these Greeks could really, that's the category they put them in. Because a Greek, a non-believer wouldn't say, oh, those are the saints of the Lord. 
that's what you would call yourself. You might call yourself the saints of the Lord, or you might call yourself the elect of God. Yes, of course we would call ourselves that, but the people who don't believe that about you are going to call you something else. And what they call you is the Christianoi. You're the Christ party. Why is that important? Because important. you and I are Christians. We're of the party of Christ. Amen. And that means any loyalty to any brand or any loyalty to any party or any loyalty to any group or philosophy or whatever else you might think is true cannot be in conflict with this loyalty because you are the Christianoi. You're the Christ party. And so our loyalty is supremely to the Son of God and God the Son. And so that is how the world understood them. And this name just apparently caught on. So what's our application today? What do we take away? Well, the first thing I think we take away is very simply this. Be a faithful witness for Christ. Lead the outcome to the Holy Spirit. What does a faithful witness do? A faithful witness prays, shares, dialogues. And they love people. They just like people. They like the people they're sharing with. But we don't produce, we don't make the seed grow. We just plant it. Someone else comes along and they water it. Listen, if you planted the seed in your son or your daughter or your granddaughter or your grandson's heart and life, pray that God will send them someone who can just water the seed and give it a little sunlight, right? It is God, God is the one who makes it grow. And so there's what you and I can do, and there's, then there's what we can't do. God is the one who makes it grow. We don't control the Spirit. We just manage what the Spirit does. So be faithful. Be a faithful witness. Believe the outcome to the Holy Spirit. Trust Him. Next, uh, be willing and open to the Spirit leading you in a direction that you hadn't anticipated. <laughs> you know, when I wrote that down, I just laughed, and I'm laughing right now because I really don't like this point. I mean, the Spirit's specialty is to take you out of your comfort zone. What is a comfort zone? A comfort zone is, by definition, a place where you are never challenged and you're never experiencing discomfort. <laughs> and God's specialty <laughs> is to challenge us and put us in a place where we are uncomfortable. So you, l listen, this is hard. This was hard for this early church. These Jews, they just wanted to talk to Jews. They're like, man, we don't want the mess of the Greeks. And God says, nope, my specialty <laughs> is to bring you into a very uncomfortable place where you are actually going to have the dialogue with people who think very different than you, who have very different kinds of lives. And you are going to have to show the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to those folks. So be willing and open to the Spirit leading you in a direction that you had not anticipated and, frankly, you don't want to go. Something God is asking you to do that if, if you had your choice, you wouldn't do it. But the Holy Spirit is saying, come, do it. And next, lean on and submit to your leaders. The first thing I would say there is lean on us. Don't go it alone. Uh, we found out over the last year that some people have just been hurting and suffering, and we've been trying to call all of you and call everyone who's an active member or a tender in this church and say, hey, we love you. Listen, don't go it alone. You don't have to. You have leaders. You have pastors and elders. You have a lot more than me of people who care for you genuinely and, and want to help you through whatever you're going through. So lean on us. This church does. This church needs Barnabas. This church needs Paul. 
And it needs the elders that are set up here, but also submit to us. Submit to our leadership. The church is blessed with leaders who are servants at heart, but they are the God-ordained authorities in that congregation. So God forbid that the pandemic or something like it would happen again, but if I ask you to, to wear a mask 100 feet from that door to this door, and you can take it off in here, just do it. Don't leave our church over there. You know, I, I am looking at places where people have left, and I saw them every Sunday, and they left over decisions that we made like that. I'm so, I am so sad about that. Because that is a heart that says, listen, I, I'll call on you when I need you, but I'm not going to submit to your authority. Listen, our submission to the authority that God has placed over our life is the key to our sanctification. I was talking to Peter Shaw about this last week, and he just brought this up to me at lunch, and I thought, you're a genius. He liked hearing that. <laughs> He's my best buddy, man. I said, Peter, that's genius. Of course. That's the reason why God has the elder board in my life. Because they have parameters for me. They have accountability and they have encouragement. And so when, when you and I submit to our leaders, that is one of the main ways in which God forms the image of Jesus in us. Why? Because Jesus, who didn't have to, submitted to the Father's will. Jesus, who didn't have to come here and live as a slimy man in a stinky old body, who was the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, didn't have to do that, but he, he obeyed. And he came and he was found in appearance as a man. And so that is, that's the Christian faith right there. It's doing stuff you don't want to do. Doing stuff you'd rather not. And allowing God to forge the cruciform character of Christ in your life. So lean on your leaders. You need us. We need you. But submit to our authority. Submit to us. That's what the scripture commands. Amen? Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word. I just know, Lord, uh, I, I just feel so challenged by your word every time I open it. But it also just, that challenge just fills me up. Because God, I, I want to meet the challenge. And Lord, would you help us if there is any way or anything that you are calling us to do that frankly is just out of our comfort zone, something we may not want to do, something that just isn't the way we've always done it. It's not the group we always talked to. But if there's something, God, you would reveal to our heart to get us out of our comfort zone and go in that direction, Lord, may we have submissive hearts to that. May we be open and flexible and willing to obey even though it brings us out of the comfort zone. Would you help us to do that? As a church, God, would you make us the most loving, kind, friendly, gospel-centered, gospel-grounded community in this region? God, may people know that they can find a friend here. And if there are sinners, they, we will be a friend to sinners. But may they hear the uncompromising good news of your salvation in Jesus. May that be what we're about. In Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm.